1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, the curious case of the American consumer. Healthy, not healthy, seems to depend on where you look. Spending on pets is still very strong, and that's helped one stock soar nearly 20% in a week. We have the name and the CEO fresh off earnings ahead. Then there's travel, entertainment, conventions, another area of seeming strength, leading to a solid third quarter for one name uniquely positioned in that space. The CEO joins us ahead as well. But then there's the New York Fed's latest report showing delinquencies rising quickly in some areas. And our market guest says one indicator she's watching suggests a rough holiday quarter ahead. We'll look at what it is and which market strategy to deploy into year end. Let's start with that report out of the New York Fed. It's the freshest and its third quarter read on household debt and credit from this morning. Delinquencies are still below pre-pandemic levels, but get this, they've jumped significantly from the second quarter, going from less than half a percent to 3%, with a particularly large uptick among borrowers with both student and auto loans. For more on these reports, I'm joined by LendingTree's chief credit analyst, Matt Schultz. He's here on set with me, right along with our very own Steve Leisman. It's great to have you both here. Steve, maybe just set us up dicap, that correctly that we really saw this big jump from q2 to q3 in delinquencies
2: and we remain below the pandemic level look if i was the pilot of the plane i'd say put on your seatbelt. this is the landing hmm. and we have some information from the control tower that things are going to be a little bit bumpy but we're not necessarily going to crash hmm. so if you take a look i got a couple graphics for you the first one looks at the um total delinquencies right and this is the number you're looking at and when you look at the chart you see the uptick, but you see that it's still well below. Okay, so this is the new delinquencies right there. And what I did with this one, these are some of my own calculations, plus the New York Fed data, is compared it to the five-year average. You can see the new transitions into delinquency, big jump on credit cards. Why credit cards? That's interest sensitive. Sure. Right? So that's a big thing. Right. A little bit more on autos, kind of close. Mortgages, still down below. Overall, still down below. But that overall thing does not include student loans Hmm. they're on hiatus right now so we'll see what happens when that happens and then guys there's a one more chart there that shows the overall delinquency levels that's the one okay that's the landing part there if you're listening on the radio it's a chart that slopes down from left to right and it starts to tick up on the right How's that description? So we is that were, right?
1: Not only yeah. is it good, but I, it is interesting to me that going back to the fourth quarter of 2019, we were near 5%. 5%. So it's these.
2: two percentage points below yeah. that 3% number you gave is still better than it was before. Now you tell me, or maybe our expert over here to my right, Bingo. will explain to me where does it stop.
1: Matt,
3: what do you think? Well, I, I think that we're going to see delinquencies continue to rise and I think that to a degree that it's a little bit of a normalization of things as things have been historically low recently, especially with credit cards, we're seeing delinquencies rise, especially among subprime folks, along with that debt rising. And what it seems to me is that even though people are generally handling their business pretty well, it just feels like there are a lot of people who are not that far away from really struggling, who may be a job loss or a medical emergency or something like that, away from really having some struggles, so it's, it's a difficult time to know.
1: It's a good point that, you know, we you want to see the most resilience right when you're going into a time when we might see rising layoffs and things like that. So credit cards, like Steve said, the rates are going up sharply. That seems to be one one area for concern. We've also been talking a little bit about access to credit. So we're seeing, we saw this in the loan officer survey yesterday, you mentioned you're seeing it in credit cards as well, that yeah. it's on both sides, you know, but people are starting to face some troubles, but they're also having more difficulty getting access to, to new products.
3: Yeah, in in the credit card space, in that, loan officer survey yesterday, it indicated that both lending standards were tightening and demand was down. So when you think about that and you talk about demand being down for new cards and debt rising, it's a sign that people maybe aren't that confident and maybe hunkering down a little bit. Whereas if they were building debt and they were still applying, maybe people are feeling good Starting that small business, remodeling their house, that sort of thing. Interesting. What would you add, Steve? What do you think we need to I be thought you
2: were going to ask me a question when I said, you tell me how it comes out, is how has it worked out before? So, guys in the back, we made a new chart. Can
1: I nuance the question? After
2: you may do, it's your show.
1: Has it, ever, <laughs> has it ever not ended in a very, like, does the pattern always repeat? Like, I look at no. that chart and I say, clearly it's going up, you know, and it's just a question of exactly how long right, and exactly right. how high. And part maybe, of the though, in other times it, it comes back down. Part of
2: the answers we're going to give you depends on what question you're asking. <laughs> if you're asking the question, are delinquencies rising, does that mean it's bad for consumer spending and the economy? That's one question. There's another question, which is, are delinquencies rising? Are we going to have a bank problem and a systemic risk problem? So this other chart we made, guys, I think Betsy just put it in there, Miss Spring. Uh, uh, let's see if we can see Take a look at it. Is it there? That's the one. Okay, so these are, if you can look at the shaded areas, those are prior recessions, okay? You can see we've had very different experiences. Let's start on the left a minor decrease, essentially, in what's current, okay? Then you have a huge decrease after 08, 09. You got a big problem there. And then you have the weirdness of the post pandemic period where the percent of loans current went up because we put, we, we put lots of cash in people's pockets. And now just at the very end there, you have this little dip down. So how is it going to end up relative to history? You can have different outcomes here relative to, um, are you going to have a systemic problem? I don't think so at these kind of levels here. Yeah. Um, and then, by the way, there's one little play that I've always wanted to do. I can't do it, but um, Jamie Dimon always seems to me to over- um, uh, overly bearish, be overly bearish, and put too much money away for delinquencies that never happens. Well, good for re- him. He always reverses that, and there's maybe a little <laughs> trade in that. Anyway, Jamie, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, I don't so you, you, you. you
1: think the next step with JPM is they might have done too many credit?
2: So they add it back, the, right? Right. Uh, when they, when they reserve, it's reserving for, 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 for bad nice. credit. He seems to always do that.
1: And Matt, let me give you a final right. word before we get to these bond auction results that are coming in. What would you, same kind of question that we left seat with, what would you be watching now? Because as Steve's data points out, there's two very different things that could happen here. There's kind of the very gentle move we went through in the early right. 2000s and the much more extreme period global financial crisis.
3: Yeah, I, I, don't, think the, I don't think we're going to see a repeat of 2008, 2009. But I think the big X factor in all of this is student loan repayments, because that's going to make a big difference in the household budget for a lot of families. And we won't see those delinquencies reported for a year because of the grace period hmm. that that they have in terms of reporting. Uh, but that may be a real underlying thing where even if people's credit scores may stay stable, what's really cooking underneath and in their budgets may not be that but is great there a
2: to reason to think it's going to be worse once these come back should there be more i will say this the economists of the new york fed in talking about this survey are a little perplexed as to why delinquencies are rising quite so much with um growth as strong as it's been and unemployment as low as it's been so i'm not sure we may get back to that normal delinquency level once we start including student loans or it could be as you're kind of suggesting be worse
3: yeah, and, and I think interest rate uh, interest rates on credit cards may be the answer to that because they're at all-time right. record highs and they're just sky high. That's
1: a great point. We haven't been through that kind of shock in quite some time. Yeah. Matt C, thank you both. We appreciate it. As I mentioned, 3-year notes were up for auction top of the hour. More scrutiny on these treasury auctions than ever before. Rick Santelli is here with the results. How would it go, Rick?
4: You know, it was pretty much a little better than average. The grade B minus boy minus What we're talking about is 48 billion three-year notes. The Dutch auction yield, 4.701. The when-issued market, 4.70. So it priced right on top of where it needed to be. All the metrics were basically right on or slightly above average except for bid to cover. And it was only a whisker below its 10 auction average not a bad start to an auction. And do keep in mind, when you look at $48 billion three years and look at the chart, you can see the market has an opinion. Yields are moving lower, which means that it wasn't a horrible auction. Why am I framing it that way? We have $112 billion when you look at these $48 billion. Tomorrow's tenure at $40 billion, then $24 billion for 30s. Well, the package, many were thinking could be around $114 billion. So the notion was $2 billion cheaper. Look at All the buying we've seen. But is that really true? It's 11 billion more than it was the last time we had 3s, 10s, and 30s. So we want to really monitor, especially the long-dated auctions yet to come. But this is the first canary in the coal mine, and it seems to be tweeting pretty good, Kelly. Not a bad (laughs) auction to start out.
1: Rick, thank you very much. We appreciate you bringing that to us again, about 4.7% for the five-year Rick Santelli. Those rising delinquencies we just talked about would seem to be a warning sign into the holiday shopping season this year. And sure enough, both of my next guests are expecting a weaker season. And that could be a headwind for stocks, but should also help to keep inflation down. Here to explain are Brian Reynolds, Chief Market Strategist at Reynolds Strategy, and Julie Beal, Portfolio Manager at Kane Anderson Rudnick and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. It's great to have you both here. Julie, let me just start with you and and what you're seeing, you know, as you kind of look through the stocks and are trying to piece together your portfolio into year end, what cracks do you see emerging?
0: Well, I think looking at the transports, I like to use those as an early indication of where goods are moving. And, you know, we had so much volatility post-COVID that it was hard to get a sense of it. But what you're clearly seeing is that while pricing remains strong in transports, the volumes are quite weak. And I think that's just a function of normalization of inventory levels. Last year, retailers had way too much inventory. This year, they are feeling a little more chicken and they don't have quite as much. But I think it's really important to be differentiated in retail. Coming out of COVID, we all had extra money, I could have probably made more money selling macaroni bracelets that my kid made than being a portfolio (laughs) manager, quite honestly. People were buying anything that was available. And now you really have to be differentiated because inflation is really stinging consumers. So you have to show great value. I think that's why off-price is better positioned than most average retailers.
1: Oh, sure, as all that inventory maybe goes to those channels as well. Brian, before I kind of like go back to the, the market piece of this, just explain why you also think this is so important, a little bit of this slowdown dynamic uh, that we're seeing into the holiday season what it could mean for inventories and inflation and and even the fed
5: well as julie mentioned inventories are high they've been growing at triple the pace they were pre-pandemic and inventory turnover has slowed and days inventory stocks is up significantly for the s p 500 that's even worse in the semiconductor area and when the ports were blocked on the west coast two years ago goods piled up people Double and tripled ordered, that led to inflation but once the ports opened we had a flood of goods coming in and that's still persisting it's starting to get a little bit better but it's going to take two years to really work these stocks down especially with slowing sales so i've said on the program before that we've been in a manufacturing recession excluding autos since april of last year this is going to make it harder for companies to draw down their inventories it's going to be a negative for manufacturing and that's a positive for bond prices which is, in a choppy environment, overall good for stock prices.
1: Interesting, because you could kind of tell the story you're telling, Brian, and have it be very negative for stocks. But you think lowing, uh, falling bond yields will ultimately be supportive?
5: Most of the gains in stocks this year have been from buybacks. Retail investors have kind of rolled over. Institutional investors have become more bearish. So as Julie was saying, you want to look at the companies that are growing, and I favor the companies that have enough cash flow to buy back their stock, because that's where the gains have come in the past year, and I think that will be more so going forward.
1: It's funny you say that as we hear, you know, Apple's bought back 600 billion dollars worth of its own stock in the last several years or some ridiculous amount like that. And obviously, uh, even they sometimes can can struggle. So, Julie, you what are the manufacturing names you actually do like here, Simpson Manufacturing, just talk about why in the tough uh, manufacturing environment Brian was referring to. We obviously saw the ISM earlier this week, twelfth straight month of contraction.
0: Well, we understand that, you know, we're still completely under housed in a massive way, right? But most people living at home right now have low interest rates for 30 years. They're not selling. They don't want to sell for less and end up buying a smaller house that they have to pay more for with mortgage rates. So it's just existing home sales are really just at a lock. So it's really up to new home sales to, to make up the difference. The problem I have is that, you know, when you buy home builders, you're exposed to very specific geographic markets and you have higher than average idiosyncratic risk. I would rather actually own a manufacturer manufacturer that has 70% market share of the home builders in a product that's actually specked in the building codes. And that's Simpson manufacturing that makes their strong tie product that literally supports the structure. Hmm. It's pretty critical. Um, but it's a small cost of the build. And so I think that they're much better positioned. It's a pristine balance sheet. Those are the types of businesses that I think I'd rather own going into kind of a choppy market.
1: And would both of you then say, and Julie, I'll ask you first, that you think it is going to be a tough holiday season for traditional retailers?
0: I think so, yes. I I don't think they're particularly well positioned. I think the level of inventory is really very difficult. Um, And it's just kind of clear that the consumer is looking for something very specific to get out there and shop. They spend all their money on Taylor Swift concerts, right? The only way you're going to get someone to shop is if you have something really special and unique. And that's not an environment that everyone does super well. I'm most concerned about that mid-level retailer. The high and low end, I think, is actually better positioned. And Brian will give you the
1: last word.
5: Well in agreement with Julie I think it's going to be tough for the large retailers to shake it off as Taylor Swift would say and I think that exacerbates the inventory problem but that's good for bond yields that's good for inflation. Consumers will buy if they feel there's value and I think prices have to come down before they see that value and pick up their spending again.
1: All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both. Brian Reynolds, Julie Beal joining us as we head into the key holiday season. We appreciate your time today. And coming up, kind of staying on the theme about reading the room, we'll hear from one of the largest lodging REITs in the world, the owner of the Grand Old Opry, no less, what they're seeing with business travel, conventions, and entertainment spending next. Plus the white gold rush. Lithium stocks are down on slowing EV sales, but one mining company is seeing record demand growth for the mineral itself. We'll check back in with the CEO of Piedmont Lithium later in the show. As we head to break, here's a quick look at markets. Unlike most days, today we started lower and have turned positive. Dow's up 76 points, S&P's up 15 to 43.81. NASDAQ's up a full percent as the 10-year yield hangs in there around 457. We're back after this Welcome back and take a look at shares of Ryman Hospitality. The lodging rate rising on yesterday's earnings report. They own both massive convention center resorts and a couple legendary concert venues. And their strength is coming from the return of corporate bookings. While leisure spend looks like it could be declining industry wide. Here to explain in an exchange exclusive interview is Ryman Hospitality president and CEO Mark Fioravante. Mark, welcome to the show. Good to see you.
6: Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Kelly.
1: Yeah, I'm very familiar with Nashville, with the Grand Ole Opry. You've spent some time there in the past. I think it was, I think we saw Vince Gill, maybe. Anyway, uh, it was- Great fantastic. artist. Yeah, he was great. So, uh, you know, I don't know if Taylor Swift came through your venue, but uh, can you speak to whether this, this kind of much-hyped trend of spending on uh, entertainment is something that you are seeing and is broad-based? Um, or what, what's going on with a little bit of this decline that, uh, that you mentioned?
6: We are continuing to see broad-based spending across our businesses, both in the hotel business as well as entertainment. And on the hotel side, that is both in the group business um, that our hotels are primarily large convention hotels with 70% of our businesses group. Uh, We're seeing strong spending there, both in terms of rate and outside the room spending in in areas like banqueting. And we're also seeing on the leisure side, as we look into the fourth quarter, uh, we're seeing Uh, solid leisure demand uh, with our uh, uh, sales up, our pace of sales up in the fourth quarter over last year, which was a record for us.
1: Though some moderation with regular vacation rates declining, is that right? Uh,
6: Our our vacation, our leisure rates are holding up uh, as well as outside the room spending. Uh, What what we are seeing is uh, a stronger growth trend uh, coming out of the pandemic on the group side.
1: Absolutely. How much more does that room does that have to run? Kind of where are we compared with pre-pandemic levels and how much further could that go? Well,
6: from a revenue perspective, in the third quarter, we were 39 percent ahead on revenue uh, versus the third quarter of 2019. Profitability was up 44 percent. And as we look uh, at our group business moving forward, uh, our business on the books for 2024 is 10 percent ahead of where it was for the same time last year for this year, and we're up 12% for 2025 compared to the same time last year.
1: That's, that's so interesting. So the, basically the, the corporate is back and your results are much better than they were pre-pandemic. Do you think that's sustainable?
6: We do. We do. And and the reason that we think it's a, su- sustainable is uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, um, the, the pandemic, I think, made everyone realize that you have to bring people together, particularly large groups, if you want to talk about culture, strategy, product launches, et cetera. So coming out of the pandemic, there was a strong move back to bringing people together. I think the other uh, the other issue that's driving some of our growth is, is that we've made significant investments in our properties uh, since 2020. Uh, we looked at the pandemic as an opportunity to go on the offensive, and we've deployed approximately one point. $7 billion in capital uh, across both our businesses, whether that's enhancements, expansions, uh, or acquisitions of new properties.
1: You have major complexes in San Antonio. I mentioned Nashville, obviously, Kissimmee, Florida, Grapevine, Texas, Aurora, Colorado, even in Maryland in, in National Harbor. Uh, so that CapEx is paying off. How much, though, uh, are higher prices driving returns? And is that a trend that you know, where we're seeing some moderation?
6: Uh, Higher prices are driving returns. Um, We are seeing, though, that, you know, uh, business levels have returned to to pre-pandemic levels in terms of the room nights sold. Um, But part of the issue here, we think that the pricing is uh, sustainable because we have invested in the properties. We've enhanced um, the product and we've enhanced the experience. And, you know, consumers look for value. They They don't necessarily just look at price. And we think that we're delivering... Uh, a terrific price value in both our businesses.
1: And I have to imagine, I don't know if that was a debt financed spending or, or, or straight up cash, but either way, you're probably glad you did it then versus now with interest rates being where they are. Does that change the business decisions you're going to make in the next couple of years?
6: No, we we continue to have a number of growth projects that we're excited about. You know, Our, our balance sheet is in terrific shape. Uh, our leverage levels are back below uh, pre-pandemic levels. We've got 1.3 billion dollars of liquidity. Uh, our maturity schedules in terrific shape. So we have the, we have the capacity and the ability to continue to deploy to deploy capital and we'll continue to do that um, in, in across both businesses.
1: And finally we're currently,
6: what... uh, we're currently under construction in Las Vegas uh, oh. with a with a new venue uh, in conjunction with Blake Shelton called Old Red.
1: Oh, interesting, because I was going to ask as a closing question just what you're most excited about in terms of some special events you might be offering around the holiday season. As our last guest said, it's only something really unique that's going to get the consumer to open up that wallet right now. What would that be uh, for your company?
6: Well, for us on the hotel side, we have terrific uh, holiday programming for staycations for families and leisure guests. And on the entertainment side, it is Old Red. It's the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Flamingo. Uh, It is a terrific venue. Uh, overlooking the Bellagio Fountains, and it, it will open in early January.
1: All right. Mark, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it, talking about Thank- what's happening in your business. Thank you. Mark Fioravanti is Ryman Hospitality Property CEO. Coming up, auction sales painting a not-so-rosy picture for the health, get this, of the high-end consumer. Later on, we'll look at what the weakness in that market and what it's telling us about the economy and stocks could be. The exchanges back after this, Dow's up 69. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a look at markets, which have turned positive today. And the Nasdaq is on quite a win streak, trying for an eight-day stretch. We haven't seen that since November of 2021. Dow's up 60. We were in the red to begin the morning, so we've moved into positive territory, especially after that better-than-expected bond auction for three-year uh, notes at the top of the hour. As for some of the movers this hour, we're watching Datadog because it's having its best day since going public. 29% uh, surge in the shares today after they beat on the top and bottom line, raised full-year guidance. Those cloud results giving a boost to some peers like Snowflake and MongoDB. By the way, they're all still 12 and 18% below their recent highs, but some huge moves today. Snowflake up 10 Mongo up 12%. Elsewhere, Planet Fitness is higher on strong results. They're also raising revenue guidance for the year and testing price hikes in 100 markets, raising the base membership price from that famous $10 to $15 a month. Remember, this is a name we heard could be impacted by the resumption of student loan payments. Shares were hit hard when the CEO left. They're up 12% today. And now let's get to some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Shares of Uber are moving higher despite missing estimates on the top and bottom line. Still, the company forecasting a strong fourth quarter. Here's what CEO Dara Khosrowshahi told Squawkbox about the next step in the company's evolution.
8: Advertising is gonna be the biggest growth area for us because we have a huge audience, over 130 million uh, audience coming at us on a monthly basis onto the platform. This is a high-end audience. They're very engaged with our platform. They're going places. And what we're seeing in advertising is 650 million now of run rate revenue growing very significantly and we're well on our way to a billion plus next year.
1: Everything turns into an ad business over time. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler.
8: All right. Thank you very much, Kelly. The U.S. imposed new sanctions today on Mexican cartel members and firms over fentanyl trafficking. The Biden administration targeted 13 members of the Sinaloa cartel and four Mexico based firms that have been accused of bringing drugs into the United States. The sanctions block connections to the U.S. banking system, eliminate their ability to work with Americans and cut off their U.S. assets. Nike will sue rivals New Balance and Skechers over patent infringement, accusing the companies of using Nike's patented fly-knit technology on the upper portions of their running and soccer and basketball shoes. New Balance said in a statement that Nike doesn't have the exclusive rights to manufacturing methods in use, it says, for decades. And meantime, the European Space Agency just unveiled the first photos from Euclid, its dark matter hunting telescope. Images show galaxies and ancient stars with stellar nurseries. One picture showcases a spiral galaxy known as IC 342, nicknamed the hidden galaxy because the Milky Way tends to obscure it from view. Space exploration grows and grows. Kelly, back to you.
1: No advertising there yet. Tyler, thanks. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, it's been a volatile few years for Piedmont lithium as demand for the minerals spiked during the pandemic. The mining company says there's still a ton of demand out there, but shares are hovering near their lowest level since late 2020. We'll check in with the CEO about that next. Welcome back to the exchange. Shares of both Lucid and Rivian are lower ahead of their results this afternoon as EV makers across the board slash prices. Is an EV winter on the way? Is it already here? Let's get to our Phil LeBeau for more on that. Phil?
7: Hey, Kelly, I'm not sure I would call it an EV winner, but there clearly is a slowdown in the growth of EV sales here in the United States. With that in mind, we've got a couple of important reports tonight and then one tomorrow morning. Let's start first off with Rivian. It is expected to post a loss, but a smaller loss compared to a year ago. A loss of $1.32 is expected uh, and a jump in revenue because we're seeing an increase in deliveries for the third quarter. The expectation is that delivery or, or revenues will be up 147 percent. And we Talk about deliveries. They haven't changed their guidance. When you take a look at where Rivian has been and where it's going in terms of its EV delivery cadence, they're still expecting to top 50,000 in terms of uh, deliveries this year. Don't forget tomorrow morning, first on CNBC, we'll talk about the Rivian third quarter with R.J. Scaringe, founder and CEO of Rivian. Lots to discuss here, especially what they're noticing when it comes to demand for electric vehicles, not just at Rivian but overall, and the other company reporting after the bell today will be lucid. And it will also be, or the expectation is that it will also be reporting a loss after the bell. And as opposed to Rivian, the lucid loss is expected to be larger than compared to last year. And that's because they've been running into issues in terms of deliveries. So when we get the Lucid results, we'll hear what Peter Rawlinson, the CEO, has to say about their outlook, though it's a far different company than Rivian, both in terms of price point and volume at this point. And don't forget, as you take a look at Rivian, Lucid, and Fisker, we will hear from Fisker tomorrow morning. But that's a completely different business model, Kelly, both in terms of production, which is happening with the Ocean SUV over in Europe, which you know means it's not like it's right here in the United States, ready to go. Uh, There's a little bit of a, a lag there, but they are ramping up their delivery. And we'll hear what uh, they have to say. Henrik Fisker, the founder and CEO of Fisker, we'll hear from him tomorrow. Kelly? Looking
1: forward to that, Phil. I wonder if, you know, in the past we would get so excited by deliveries. And I know that's still the bread and butter for earnings for electric vehicles because sure. you've got to be able to deliver something. But there's increasing yeah. attention on how much these companies are losing for every vehicle that they make. A high rate environment is a very difficult right. one in which to grow a hugely capital intensive business.
7: And that's going to be front and center in the conversations this afternoon with analysts, uh, between them and R.J. Scaringe, as well as Peter Rollinson. But again, the the capital that is already. Ready to go for Rivian, and they've got another plant that they're going to begin construction on early next year in Georgia. That's different than what you're looking at with regard to Lucid. And Lucid's a much smaller footprint in terms of production, which is out in the Arizona, in Phoenix area. And they're also beginning final assembly of vehicles in Saudi Arabia. And remember, the Saudis own more than 65% of Lucid. So that will be a focus in the future as far as production of very high-end electric vehicles.
1: No, great point as well, even about the geopolitics there. Phil, for now, thank you. We appreciate it. Our Phil Lebeau watching you those results. Now, you'd think lithium would be doing great right now, but check out Piedmont Lithium. It is now a revenue-generating company after commencing customer shipments last quarter, but management saying, quote, results were materially impacted by the 45% drop in lithium prices in Q3. Obviously, they're not the only One's feeling the pain of that. Shares of other lithium players, like Albemarle, also taking a hit over the past four months. And as signs point to slowing EV demand, lithium is a key component in those batteries. Could there be more pain ahead, or is it priced in now? Joining us in an exclusive interview is Keith Phillips, CEO and President of Piedmont Lithium. Keith, good to see you, welcome.
9: Kelly, great to be with you again.
1: Best of times, worst of times, to be in the electric vehicle business or supply chain.
9: Yeah, listen, we're pretty happy. I, I heard the lead-in uh, on your your other uh, commentator. I mean, the good news is shipments are important. We had our first two shipments in Q3. We had a 50% gross margin in Q3 on our shipments. So even with lithium prices off dramatically, we're very fortunate to be cash flow positive from those shipments and excited to move forward.
1: And the business is real. I mean, we're still in kind of nascent stages here. How? What's the vision?
9: Listen, I would say the whole lithium thematic is in the third inning, maybe, uh, of a nine-inning game, the EV and lithium thematic. its It's been lumpy. We've been up and down as an industry, EV, EV sales, EV demand, lithium prices. We're in a point where lithium prices are actually off probably 75% from their peak. Wow. But they're still at a level where companies like us can be profitable. Uh, uh, but we're very big believers in the thematic. I mean, we think EV demand is at all-time highs, up 38% this year, up 40% in the U.S., Uh, We think you're going to see just you given what's going on in the economy with higher rates, uh, capital cost, inflation and projects. I think you'll see some of the battery and EV plants delayed a little bit by the big providers, but they're going to come. I think it's an unstoppable trend uh, and we want to be a big participant in that.
1: You know, watching commodity markets over the past 15 years or so, it it strikes me how volatile and overall generally how unmoved in the long run commodity prices themselves are. And then the businesses, their fortunes kind of rise or fall on their own productivity. I guess uh, maybe there's a better word to choose there. Um, But explain how, you know, wherever the price of lithium fluctuates going forward, what do you really think is the key component to delivering a solid return for investors who might be getting involved with your company at this stage?
9: Well, you need to own high quality assets that are low cost producers in their business. So we have uh, an asset in the Quebec, we're a joint venture partner with Sayana Mining. It's the biggest lithium producer in North America. We own 25% of that project. We're also the biggest customer of that project. We buy 50% or more of the material. And we buy that on terms that enable us to be quite profitable. So we're very... Very happy with that. Our other assets, similarly, Ghana will be, uh, there's a spodumene project we're developing with a partner in Ghana. That will be a very low-cost producer. And then we believe our downstream projects in Tennessee and North Carolina will be world-class. And being based in the Southeast will be very, very competitive. So, in a commodity business, it's really important to have good assets in good locations with good cost positions to be able to weather the cycle and to be there when the markets turn back, as they will to profit at the top of the cycle.
1: Really interesting. So on that note, then, and kind of with that in mind, let's talk about what's going on with EV demand. I'm sure you have to have some kind of forecast or sense for that market as part of your business projections. Have we? What happened this year? How did we go from a market that was so undersupplied last year to a market that very quickly seems to be oversupplied relative to demand? Or how would you describe it?
9: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, EV, I think the last few weeks, you've seen a series of news out of some of the car companies sort of slowing down some of their plans. It's a very recent development. I mean, the first half of the year was really terrific for the um, uh, for the EV business, lithium prices came off all-time highs, but those highs were never thought to be sustainable by anybody in the industry. So I think there was a temporary blip last year where there was insufficient supply, demand demand grew, and that uh, that drove lithium prices to probably unsustainable levels. I think we're at risk of doing the opposite now. I mean, at the end of the day. We're still at a point where we need to develop dramatically more lithium projects. In the U.S., we think we're going to need 40 times more domestic lithium by wow. the end of this decade than we produce today, 40 times. It's going to be hard to develop those projects in an environment where lithium prices have fallen, capital costs have risen, and interest rates are up. So, I think I think we'll see prices stabilize and begin to rebound. And I, I think they'll continue to be volatile. Um, but in the medium term for sure we're very very bullish.
1: That's a very good explanation of kind of the dynamics we've all been living through. Okay, so finally, how much of your end market goes into EV batteries and how much goes into other types of batteries or other uh, you know other other things that need lithium.
9: So for us we're totally focused on the EV business. It is interesting, you know, energy storage systems, ESS. These are the big grid grid storage uh, applications that wind farms, solar farms, et cetera. That is now 13% of the battery market, which is a wow. big growth. It's growing more quickly than the EV business. But our focus is on EVs. We're uh, close uh, we're close friends now with all the major car companies, the major EV battery companies. That's the market we're focused on in the US. Uh, our material could go into the ESS batteries, but we're focused on EVs. And I think. The big advantage we have—we're an American company. There are only three of us that are actually American companies uh, focused on the lithium business. We're producing—we're going to be producing in Canada, principally in Canada and the United States. And customers really want material from Canada and the United States. And the and the IRA has just brought tremendous benefits to yep. battery companies, car companies, and producers like us. No that's doubt, capitalizing.
1: That's fascinating, Keith. Thanks so much for joining us to explain. We really appreciate your time today.
9: Thanks, Kelly. Keith Phillips,
1: CEO of Piedmont Lithium. Still to come, luxury consumers are usually expected to hold up better when things start to slow down. But tell that to the art world why this year's big auctions could put the bust in blockbuster. We'll talk about that next. And don't miss an exclusive interview with Disney CEO Bob Iger. That's tomorrow after their results cross around 4 p.m. Eastern, talking streaming, the actor strike, and so much more. Looking forward to that. The Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get to another consumer name. Shares of pet food company Fresh Pet are up 17% so far this week after reporting a strong third quarter and a narrower-than-expected loss. They beat on the top line and raised their full-year forecast, the company noting that Gen Z and millennials accounting for 50% of dog owners in the U.S. will remain a key sales driver. Fresh Pet has also raised prices 27 percent over the past two years. And while Oppenheimer noted customers have digested those increases, half of America's youth say inflation impacts their financial well-being very negatively, according to our latest poll. So will they keep shelling out for their pets? For more on that, let's bring in Billy Sear. He is the CEO of Fresh Pet. Uh, Welcome, Billy. It's good to have you here here, Kelly. This is a company that a lot of people are very passionate about. I think the results uh, speak to that. Just talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the near term.
10: Yeah, um, we obviously are seeing very, very strong growth. There's been a lot of uh, comments about Uh, the CPG industry in general and the pet food industry in particular uh, facing some challenges, but we certainly haven't been seeing that. We're up 33 percent in the most recent quarter. We've guided to growth this year north of 25 percent. We feel like the pet food market is a great market to be in, and we're certainly seeing no signs of slowing.
1: No signs of whatsoever? Not in cats, not in dogs, not in—do you serve any other kinds of pets?
10: Well, most of our business is dog food. We do sell a small amount of cat food, um, but the bulk of our business is dog food. And, you know, those are obviously the creatures that bring an awful lot of value to families. And so they're willing to feed their pets the best pet food. And that's why we're seeing very, very strong growth.
1: I, you know, I was briefly a cat owner a few years back, but I'm I'm not a dog owner presently. So tell me, my understanding is the fresh pet difference. This is literally almost, you know, human quality food that require. Talk to me about the price point and the differentiation. How far ahead are you of competitors who might want to now catch up?
10: You know, uh, our pricing is in line with our competitors, you know, similar to where it was pre all the price increases pre the pandemic were priced comparatively about the same, Uh, but obviously prices overall have gone up quite a bit as the cost of proteins and packaging materials and transportation have gone up. But consumers have digested that pricing, at least as far as our business is concerned, and we are now seeing the demand uh, growth continue, and it's based on volume growth now. It's not just pricing growth. A lot of people saw growth from pricing, We've seen growth from uh, from volume. We we're up 23 percent on volume in the most recent quarter.
1: So what are your investments that you'd be making now to ensure that you can continue to have results like this with the knowledge in the back of your mind that at some point it may slow down to whatever normal is?
10: Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, we consider this to be our normal. Uh, we've given guidance for uh, growth through 2027. That's about 25 percent per year growth. Hmm. And so 25 percent growth is in the right place for us. And the way we drive that growth is by telling consumers via advertising about the fresh pet product. We don't do any discounting, no promotion. Our business is built on consumers becoming aware of a better way to feed their pets. And when they feed their pets this better way, the dogs notice it, the pet parents notice the difference, and they continue to feed it and become very loyal users of fresh pet. So it's a very simple business model.
1: I was just going to say, if you, if you do 25% growth, we're going to put you in ARK and, you know, that's NVIDIA kind of, qual- I don't know what the multiple is these days. I, 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 did you have a, a loss in the quarter, if I'm not mistaken?
10: We did. Obviously, you know, as a high growth company, we think much more about EBITDA and we we are on track to more than triple EBITDA this year or just EBITDA this year. So we feel very good about that growth. And we've now put up 21 consecutive quarters with more than 25 percent growth. So this is not just a short term fad. This is just not a pandemic driven fad. This is something that's strong, sustained growth.
1: Talk to me about Jana Partners. How's that relationship going?
10: Uh, well, we settled with them earlier this year, and we're now focused on the future. I think that they're very interested in seeing the company grow, and so are we. And, uh, you know, we're glad to have reached a resolution, and we're moving forward with uh, what we think is a very strong business plan and the full support of our shareholders.
1: Is, uh, would you say that there is anything in the business plan now that is the result of their involvement?
10: You know, they came in uh, after we had announced a very significant uh, set of changes last September, and we're executing against that plan. That plan that we had laid out uh, called for some organization changes, it called for some new focus in some operational areas, and that's the plan we're executing, and that's the plan that's delivering the results that we wanted to deliver. And I think that you know every one of our shareholders is telling us today that they appreciate what we've done, they appreciate the results that we're being a- able to produce, we just feel good that this is the right direction to go.
1: Two quick final questions. One is that you're still at a business stage that was more rewarded in the era of low interest rates and, and pre-pandemic than it is today. Um, so, when yep. do you expect kind of more consistent, you know, real earnings growth or positive cash flow, um, the kinds of things that might calm investors down in a, in a more difficult uh, investing environment?
10: Yeah, I mean, this is a scale-driven uh, business. We had a significant first-mover advantage, and we wanted to maximize it so we grew as fast as we could or as long as we could. And now we're at the point where we know that we need to turn that scale into profits. We've we've outlook that we would become free cash flow positive in 2026. Um, we have cash on the balance sheet today. We have enough cash to carry us for quite some time. And we feel very good about our prospects for both growth and growth on the bottom line. The bottom line improvement that we made this year is probably the biggest piece of news for us. We'll We'll triple our EBITDA this year and on our way to a very significant increase again next year.
1: Last question, and I do think it's worth kind of thinking through the weakness that your core customer could experience, Gen Z, Millennials, the student loan repayments restart. We've had a bevy of data on CNBC all day long about some of the financial fragilities they're feeling. Does that pose a risk if all of a sudden the fundamentals for that uh, population cohort look a lot worse than they have for the past couple of years?
10: You know, we've been watching for that for quite some time because that has been something people have, you know, speculated about. We haven't seen it yet. And what I can tell you is if you look at past periods of economic stress, the pet food is one of the last things that people will scrimp on. They will scrimp on vacations. They'll scrimp on gifts. They'll scrimp on their Starbucks coffee, maybe. But they're not going to scrimp on the food that they feed to the most precious member of their family, their dog. And so we feel very good about our ability to uh, continue to grow the business at a strong rate, even if there is, you know, a a little bit of an economic challenge. And we showed in the most recent quarter that we grew amongst all income cohorts and against all age cohorts. So, you know, any demographic issues that people have been talking about certainly haven't hit us yet.
1: All right. Maybe one day we will be among your customers. If we can, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) Billy, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it.
10: Great. Thank you very much, Kelly.
1: Billy Sear is the CEO of Fresh Pet. Picasso, Warhol, just a few of the artists whose works will be hitting the auction block this week in New York. And while 2022 was a record year for Sotheby's, this one could be a little different. We got your read on the high-end consumer next. Welcome back. Before we go, we have one more read on the consumer. Cracks may be finally showing on the high end, too. The fall auction season in New York kicks off tomorrow. The sales total is expected to be $1.5 to $2 billion, and that would be well below last year's tally of $2.7 billion. Overall, auction sales of post-war and contemporary were down 24% in the first half. Sellers don't want to risk a decline in prices, so supply is a little tighter. On the buy side, China's slowing economy has hurt demand in Asia. The Middle East is likely to be weak, and the U.S. is the big open question. The star this week is this Picasso portrait of his mistress, Marie Therese, that's expected to sell for at least $120 million at Sotheby's. They also have a rare self-portrait by portrait by Basquiat that's expected at $40 to $60 million, and Christie's has one of Monet's iconic water lily paintings that is estimated to go for about $65 million. Now... If you like wheels more than water lilies, R.M. Sotheby's is selling the most expensive Ferrari ever at auction. It's a 1962 GTO expected to go for over $60 million. And if this goes well above expectations, then maybe we can say the high end is still hanging in there. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.